You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to educator and author, Dr. Melissa Saden. As part of our Dyslexia Awareness Month series, Melissa will share with us her personal story about how trauma and reading affected her family. She'll share how trauma gets in the way of the brain learning to read, what happens to children with trauma experiences, and how we as practitioners can help to heal trauma with instructional practices. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. Today, we are continuing our conversation about reading and trauma. I can't wait for this conversation. We started it previously with parents of dyslexic children and experts such as clinical psychologist Stephen Dykstra. So we have Dr. Melissa Saden with us today, and she is an educator. She has a doctorate in developmental trauma, which just sounds like I mean, it's just so specific. And I love that, right? I'd love to like dive so deeply into one area. Um, But she has a book that we both read, Teacher's Guide to Trauma. So she's here to talk to us about how trauma can get in the way in, you know, in the brain, like what actually happens in the brain when someone has trauma and how it can get in the way of learning how to read and what happens to children with these trauma experiences and how we can start to help children heal from these experiences. So that's what we'll jump into today. So welcome. Thank yeah, you welcome, very much Melissa. for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And thank you for your podcast. I think it's uh, much needed. And I love talking about literacy any chance I get. Yeah, well, so we're we. so glad you're here today. <laughs> Would you start by telling yes. us a little bit about yourself before we jump into all of the really, really deep topics that we have on deck today? So um, I was born in, no, I'm kidding. I always love to do that. Everybody, every once in a while, I get a look on someone's face like, she's not going back that far. Is she? We don't uh, have that much time. <laughs> uh, lifelong educator, um, special education, general education, um, building administrator, you know, in and around. My mother was an educator, the best educator I've ever seen, and a literacy instructor. Um, and so it's just been, it's, it's who I am really. And then my Mm -hmm. husband and I, um, found our first son in a Bulgarian orphanage. Uh, he was three years old and we fell madly in love and we brought him home and started our family. And again, you know, lots of understanding about child development. And my, um, first master's degree was in, um, behaviorally challenged children. I was doing that a lot when I was working as a special ed teacher. Um, people warned me that he was going to struggle because he had spent three years in an orphanage and I felt like I was uniquely qualified for that. And, right. uh, anybody who's ever raised kids knows that the first thing you find out is, you know, nothing <laughs> and worse, you know, people were turning to me like I was the expert and I, I, he was not, he was not doing, um, things that, that children do like, you know, the whole antecedent behavior stimulus and response was not following any kind of normal patterns at all. 
So that's really started my journey of what is this. Um, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk uh, wrote an article in 2005. Uh, Theo had been home for a few years then, and he said it was an editorial because, interestingly enough, back then, he couldn't get like the Journal of uh, Medicine to publish it. Um, so he said, he's the guy who gave us the term post-traumatic stress disorder, by the way. So this is his oh. field. And so he says, there's this thing called developmental trauma and children who have adverse childhood experiences, it's different than if something difficult happens to you as an adult and it changes the way your brain grows. And then he went through, you know, what these kids look like. And I just, uh, I still have that article. It's tattered. I act cause I printed it out. You know, it was back in the day. And um, it, it changed my life because now I knew I was like, this is my son. Um, so then we spent, you know, the next 20 years trying to find people who understood developmental trauma. We did, in fact, have the pleasure and the honor of working directly with Dr. Vanderkolk, um, who confirmed my suspicion that, you know, he had developmental trauma. And so then, OK, now he has to go to school. Right. And he has to be educated. And. Um, he had tremendous language delay, which we had, you know, as soon as he could sit and interact, I had him in front of physical therapists, occupational therapists and speech therapists, some wonderful folks just helping develop what I now know was a um, unequally and developmentally delayed autonomic nervous system. He struggled to learn to read. And um, so. You know, there were things that we had to do um, in addition to some fabulous Orton-Gillingham approaches. Um, and you should hear the boy read now. He's 24 years old and his fluency mm -hmm. is just fantastic. But so as a, I was a building a system principal at that point, and I'm starting to look around at all the other children who are struggling to learn to read. And I'm starting to feel like, well, they weren't all from orphanages, for sure. It was a regular <laughs> public school in central New Jersey. I was just like, no, there's a lot of similarities with some of these kids and Theo that were slightly different if you looked carefully than children who I knew were getting what they needed um, from, you know, conception through their early childhood years. And so I started looking very closely um, at the connection between um, adverse childhood experiences and um, the development of the brain and how it impacts reading. And so that's really what I've spent um, the rest of my life on is healing Theo and then teaching teachers uh, very much like you both do. I felt like I had to share um, what I now understood that we're not being told still to this day, we're not being told in most pre-service teaching programs about the impact of trauma on the brain. Would you mind to just, I'm, I love what you said about, you know, you noticed that other students were having similar issues, but obviously they were not all adopted from an orphanage in Bulgaria. Can you talk a little bit about the, like, I don't know if this is the right term, but like maybe the spectrum of what trauma is? Like, how do you define that? What does it look like? Because, I mean, the orphanage is an extreme example of a traumatic event, right? But for other students in central New Jersey, it looks a lot different. So, yeah, excellent question. Thank you. Um, and it is a spectrum. We need to be able to use that word outside of folks who struggle with autism. 
It, it is a spectrum. And there's a lot of conversation about what the diagnosis will eventually be because developmental trauma is still not in the book of diagnoses. And so right now we call it like the working title is developmental trauma disorder. But because one size fits one, it looks different on every child. You can have twins in a home who might not be getting consistent food or consistent shelter or they have consistent shelter, but the attention, the, that loving connection that parents give their babies where you just sit there. I sat there with Theo, but I also sat there with my second child, Noah, for hours just staring at them and, and smiling and cooing and all of that stuff. And so we have children who might not be hurt by their primary caregivers, but might be denied that intense long-lasting cooing and attention. It's called attachment. And so I did suspect that I had children there in central New Jersey who weren't getting the full dose, if you will, of those things. Um, I knew some of the students in my school had shelter insecurity. I knew that some of them had food insecurity. I knew that some of them were being raised by mothers who had shelter and food insecurities when they were children. Um, so I started to pay close attention to ACEs, right? Adverse Childhood Experiences, the study done by Dr. Anda and Dr. Folletti. Um, in 1997, 20 years later, you can't ever count all the ACEs there are in the world. But the idea basically is children need us to stare at them. They need us to smile at them consistently. And they need us to do something when they cry. Now, I have to caution, there's a lot of wonderful parents out there who, like me, finally needed to shower, right? You're in the <laughs> early months of it, and you're like, if I don't shower, I will lose my reason for going on in this life. I've been there. <laughs> so you put the kid in the little bouncy seat on the floor in the bathroom, and you're singing the Barney songs while you're in the shower, and the kid screams through the whole thing. That is not traumatizing your child. But all of those other times that my children cried or needed something, there I was. I didn't always get it right, but what the child brain knows is that you're trying. Perfect parenting is trying. Mm -hmm. And so you just really have to try consistently to the best of your ability to figure out why they're crying. And the same thing when they're four and five and six and seven and eight and nine. And then you have to continue to try with your teenagers and, and, you know, push through the fact that they keep telling you that they don't need you and they know everything there is to know. And <laughs> sometimes on good days, you know, they hate you. So perfect parenting is just telling these kids that you're trying. And I knew that there were some parents, although trying were not, meeting the needs of their children in a regular way. And so these children who have these adverse experiences, which by the way, can include um, racism and um, job bias and lack of access to quality schools or clean water, right? So there's a lot of other community-wide and environmental things that can impact the child getting what they need. That is such a great point. And I, I would like to stamp too that we're just mentioning some causes of trauma. There are a whole host of others that we, you know, could share that may be happening in your community in, you know, with children that you know in your classroom. So we're just sharing a few. But 
I'm really wondering right now, Melissa, what happens to children with trauma experiences? What is what happens in their body? What happens in their brain? How does this how does this affect them as people? Okay, so um, in order to get a full understanding of of ACEs and how it impacts us all, I strongly recommend you go to the Trauma Foundation or one word dot org. Uh, they have an eight minute video that is the greatest thing out there right now. Um, so if you have any more questions about all of those things I just mentioned, this little video is fabulous. But I will answer your question, Lori, by explaining that basically we have an autonomic nervous system. Part of that is the limbic system. And in our limbic system, the three major players in the limbic system are the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the prefrontal cortex. And it's a complex system of switches, if you will, right, of, of, of neurons that, that fire and don't fire back and forth. When there's trauma whatever that trauma is, um, th- those things get impacted because the, the part of the brain, the amygdala, that's primary job is to keep us safe. We all have one and it, it works until we die to keep us safe. That thing has to shut down other functions in order to do its job. So now if I'm um, a little baby and I'm hungry, so my amygdala fires, right? Oops, I'm hungry, which at that age, at six months old, if I, someone doesn't feed me, I'll die is, is perfectly normal development, right? So what happens is the baby cries, signaling to another one of us that there's a need and it needs to be cared for. So in the case where I cry and cry and cry, but my mom is currently losing um, her ongoing battle with alcoholism, um, then the amygdala fires wildly, loudly, if you will. And when things fire together, they wire together. It is not a muscular situation, but if you think about using one arm more than the other or weightlifting with only one arm for three years, obviously it's going to be much stronger and it'll be your go-to arm for all of your tasks. Well, so that's sort of what happens in the brain is this survival brain becomes in in studies showing that it becomes larger by volume actually than than a person who's getting what they need. So now what happens is I'm sitting in a second grade classroom and there's two cute little kids over there. They're all cute by the way. These two are just as cute as all the others. And they're sitting there chatting with each other and I'm sitting at my desk, but I suddenly perceive that they're laughing at me. And now I'm not safe. And now my amygdala floods my stress response system. And at that point, the hormone balance prevents the other parts of the brain that need to wire together for learning, for focus, for access to cognitive function. And so when that keeps happening, you really get a delayed development of our executive functions. And for those of you who aren't familiar, executive functions are really the mechanics of our brain that access our our cognition and make it do things for us, like remember and organize and approach a task with perseverance. All of these things come from our executive function, which then is interrupted in its development. And that's why one size fits one, right? Because I've met kids who, who are um, extremely attentive to organization who have had pretty significant trauma. Um, whereas my son 
Um, oof, he, he get, he's 24 now. So I, like I label boxes, those refrigerator boxes and put them in the fridge so that he can put things where they belong and find them again. Right. <laughs> this is, this is, he can't really, literally, he can't find his way of a paper bag. He loves it. He knows it. He talks about Google maps all the time. You know, mom, Google maps will get me out of this paper bag is what he says all the time. So, you know, similar traumas can still bring on very different brain um, performance. And so reading, as you both know, is extremely complex. And so all of these different parts of the brain, the hippocampus, which is in the midbrain and part of this autonomic nervous system, becomes greatly impacted by ongoing trauma. And um, that delays the executive functions and the prefrontal cortex um, is a big part of reading as well. And as you know, um, tracking speed, but also processing speed in the brain and um, memory, right? What does that word mean? Can I hold on to that word while I read these five other words in this sentence and pull them all together to make meaning out of the sentence? And any one of the parts of that can be impacted by trauma or all of them. Um, so we have kids who now, now that I perceive these two little kids might be making fun of me, even if they're just laughing, you know, at a little bug on their desk, right? Um, my amygdala floods my stress response system. And it can cause me to tell you that reading is stupid or throw my book on the floor or do things that aren't at all connected because I'm not able to even access you know, I'm actually afraid that I'm going to die. My brain's telling me that because I think these two friends of mine are making fun of me. There's absolutely no way that particularly child in elementary school without extensive training um, by a developmental trauma therapist is going to be able to tell you that. And third graders can't tell you why they're mad most of the time anyway. <laughs> so if you yeah. add trauma, then you delay self-understanding as well. Melissa, is this... That idea of fight or flight, are, are, the, are the kiddos living in fight or flight mode? Yes. Yes. There's not, actually not four F-words. <laughs> yeah. Oh, four F-words. Okay, Freeze fight, is another flight. one, right? Freeze. There's I don't four. Because, the well, because you can't have We're too many F-words. Uh, <laughs> so, so maybe there's five. And flight. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. There, well, okay. Yeah. There's that fifth one that has nothing to do with trauma, <laughs> but is a word that we all love. Yes. Um, there's freeze, there's fight, there's flight, and there's a large population and scientific community starting to add fawn, like little baby deer, mm -hmm. fawn. Um, that's, I, I really call that one of the attachment styles. Um, little kids who are, um, they will morph into whatever you need them to be so that you will like them. Um, oh. You know, so they be, and sometimes this is the third grader that's trying to get on your lap, right? The big jump from second to third right. grade, but third graders no longer sit on the teacher's lap. And very few second graders do, but maybe at lunchtime when they're really sad, right? A seven-year-old. Okay, but by third grade, you're as startled as the kid is when she's climbing into your lap. And that's a definite signal that she didn't get the psychological development of self um, that she needed. And her brain is still in the place where a little girl needs to crawl onto someone's lap. Mm. So, but what that will look like is that, uh, you know, actually I, I might excel at learning, but then I get one wrong and that amygdala fires puts me in a flight or a fight response. And, um, 
I'm unable to learn. And I might shut down completely or I might storm out of the room. We have to understand that that freeze, fight, flight, and fawn can be can happen simultaneously. Um, they can happen quietly. Um, that's the other thing. People always think, you know, fight response is, is screaming, yelling, cursing, and running out of the room. The fight response is anybody moving toward their perceived threat. So that little girl back in the classroom where the two friends are talking and laughing, a fight response would be that I would move toward that threat. So maybe I'd walk over there and, and maybe I'd say mean things to them. Um, or maybe I'd throw something at them like a pencil, right? A flight response is I would move away from my perceived threat. And that's a very important word, right? That perceived threat. This is where teachers go. I don't know what happened. I was sitting there, the, you know, Sally knows she's safe in my classroom. Well, okay, she does, except when her amygdala fires and then it has nothing to do with you. So um, I, I could move away from the threat, which now might be back to that, you know, reading is stupid. Now I'm looking for your attention any way I can get it. Um, or, you know, maybe I need to go to the nurse or maybe I jump up and run out of the room. Um, and yeah. freeze is a hard one because freeze can look like a lack of focus. Kids who just stare off, um, they, they look like they're daydreaming, um, except if you ask them what they were thinking about, they don't have an answer because freeze is really kind of a, a shutting down of your essential systems um, because the brain has become so overwhelmed by these flooding hormones that the amygdala pushes out that they start to shut systems down. Falling asleep constantly in the middle of class, um, mm -hmm. those are freeze responses. So yeah, there's four F words and they are the things that any of us will do um, if our amygdala fires. But with kids with trauma, that amygdala is firing way more than it is for a child who, who got most of what they needed, you know, from zero to eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. You just reminded me of so many like memories of <laughs> things happening in my classroom. And at the time yeah, you're same. like, I don't know what's happening here. And I, I was, I was just thinking of one student. I, I'm not sure exactly where this falls. It might be kind of that fawn one because that's new to me. Um, but I, every time there was an assignment, no matter, it didn't matter what it was. It, there was an immediate response from this student and he would just hand up in the air. I need help. <laughs> there was no even attempt to try no matter what it was. Um, and I, that it reminded me of that fawn one. I wasn't, he wasn't climbing in my lap. This was sixth grade, but mm -hmm. it was an immediate, like, I need help. <laughs> I can't do anything unless I have you right next to me. Um, right. And, and you find yourself saying, um, you haven't even given it a try. Right. Okay. So I have a great strategy for that. And this is good for all ages, but you're right. Melissa, you bring up a very good point. These things look very different based on their age. And the older they get, the more they're actually, um, They've gotten very good at, at covering up, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you say what's wrong with you to a sixth grader, they'll make something up in the absence right. of knowing, right? But right. you're right. It's all the same freeze, fight, or flight. It just does start to look different as we grow. So if you have kids who are, um, 
it, they raise their hand. Maybe they raise their hand. Maybe they're raising their hand or calling out. Maybe they're not raising their hand at all. You know, Miss Smith probably Ms. Smith. wasn't always right. Yes, <laughs> I need you. 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 And, and you're like, oh my gosh. And all the other kids are trying to work. And and if you don't right. go over there, then she starts to interact with all the kids at her table, and Correct. you know, all heck is about to break loose. <laughs> so, time like you were there. <laughs> See, I had all these kids. So, for example, um. Let's let's call him Doug. I, I need to come up with a name because <laughs> otherwise the pronouns get Doug very confusing. So Doug's in your class, Melissa, and and this is what's going on. And you go over with a um, thirty second timer, and you say, Doug, I want you to put your name right here, and you highlight it. So there's a visual too. Um, see this timer? Turn it over. I'm going to be back. As soon as this timer is done, because what happens is you go off to talk to other kids and you do get distracted and then you really don't come right back. So this child has a tremendous fear that you're going to leave them like abandon them forever. That's what the brain is saying, even though, of course, that's not what's going to happen. There isn't logic in survival. OK, so um, the, the child stares at the timer. And then you know what happens, right? What does Doug do the second the last grain of sand drops? It's done. I it's done. It's done. <laughs> so you go back over and you say, great, Doug, did you write your name? Sometimes, so the way this would start was, no, nothing's happened. He was staring at the timer the whole time. But what I started to notice, what I had 30 seconds of peace and quiet. So then I say, okay, turn it back over 30 more seconds, but this time try to write your name. I mean, what happens is we get so freaked out. He has to write like a three paragraph essay, right? And right. you're like, oh my gosh, this is our third minute into this. And he's now not right. writing his name, but you're building trust that you will help him. Once he trusts that you will help him, he will be able to hang in there until you can get back to help him. And then what starts to happen is because now you're on the two minute timer, it, it could be three weeks later. Honestly, it could be six months. Hang in there, my friends. Everybody grows at their own rate. But now you like another teacher's like, how come Doug's so good in your class? And you're like, because Doug trusts me. And that's not a very easy thing for him to do. And so he and I have worked out when he really needs help and when he doesn't. And he sets the timer. And these little silly timers, you can do this with five-year-olds and you can do, I've done it in high school, you know, because the timers are all over the classroom anyway, by the way, get some timers because they're fabulous just to have all the classroom kids. You know, when you say to kids, all right, you're going to work for five minutes. Yeah. They have um, nice timers on the smart boards now. That's helpful too, because mm -hmm. you know, our five minutes turns into 20. Then we feel like we're, we're rushing and it's really just because we got engaged with kids and lost track of time. So yeah. kids with timers, your classroom's going to run literally, no pun intended, like clockwork. But kids like Doug might be able to develop the ability to wait. That's what you want. The ability so, to yeah. Melissa, wait. Melissa, let me really ask helpful. you this. I, I'm thinking, are we using the timer? I, like, are we using the timer for more than one purpose? Are we using the timer to oh, regulate the absolutely. response and, and also chunk the assignment? Yes. Like that's where, as you were talking, I was thinking this is multifunctional here. <laughs> okay. Yes. Sure that's I why I said everybody needs timers. That. And uh, you know, as a principal, I was careful not to give people a whole lot of stuff unless they asked for it because when I cleaned out my closet, every time I changed grades or schools, I would be like, 
I could fill an entire shopping cart. Here's all the stuff you didn't ask for. So I didn't use it, right? Because I didn't ask for it. So I, you know, help teachers understand the the myriad of ways that you can use timers. And then for a couple of weeks um, at faculty meetings, um, somebody would do a share. What's a way that you used a timer in the last, you know, since our last meeting? And I did that for like, you know, six months. So people could just hear all the different things that really clever people do with timers. And then if you asked me for timers, I gave them to you. So I had them in my office. By the way, they were behind my desk. So anybody who came into my office had to stare at them. <laughs> so it was subliminal advertising as well. <laughs> um, but yes, and clever teachers. Yeah, if, if you can work until this timer's over right? Then you can go do this thing and set another timer over there, right? So for your kids who truly do have attention and focus issues, it helps. For kids who are triggered, just watching the sand is sometimes all that it needs to do. Um, I've had kids go back to the place of peace and I have a, a big one there that's, um, I have 30 minute and 20 minute and 10 minute timers back there. And kids will just turn the timer they think they're going to need to regain composure to go back to the lesson. So it helps them try to figure out what they need as well. Not every kid. My, my son, Theo, is a perfect example of he needed tactile regulation tools. You know, I gave him a glitter wand one time because I was, you know, fancy and going to get good at this regulation <laughs> stuff. And he tried to hit me with it. So I was like, OK, not his tool. But he likes um, silicone sponges. I have one here, but I moved it uh, recently. Um, yeah. Silicone sponge, you can buy them at Walmart. They're supposed to be sponges. I don't find them very effective as sponges. But um, when your fingers interact with silicone sponges, serotonin gets released in your brain. Serotonin oh. is the happy hormone, but it's also the hormone that blocks stress response hormones. So if you have serotonin flooding through your brain. Oh my gosh, I need like 30 of them on my desk. <laughs> so first of all, my my um, younger sister is in um, finance. And so, you know, they're talking in the millions and billions of dollars daily. And she, she um, went to an exhibit with me. I go to conferences all the time. And she, she, I finally, she was fidgeting and moving around. So I handed a, a silicone sponge to her. And she's like, what do you want me to do with that? I said, nothing. I want you to touch it. So at the end of the day, she was like, can I have this? I'm like, yes, you can. And, and then, you know, she put it down on her desk and found that she stopped interrupting people. She was always, she's very, very bright. So she gets to the answer 25 minutes before anybody else in the meeting. And people got mad at her, right? Because she was interrupting. <laughs> and she is calmer because of that silicone sponge. But silly putty, um, Puzz the thing I like about silly putty and um silicone sponges and therapeutic um therapeutic silly putty is the best because it's really thick. Um, is that you can do that while you're thinking and working. Um, and it all depends on what you need. So you know, we create regulation tools in our schools um that are something I can do while I'm working. Something maybe I'm too triggered and I need to go to the place of peace and do a puzzle, a Rubik's cube, right? And there's a good example of one size fits one because mm. if I use a Rubik's cube, it's going out the window mm, about three minutes in. And yet my son loves to do the Rubik's cube when he's really angry. 
Um, and of course he solves them very quickly. And um, so I've gotten him like the multi-layered ones. He wants to get out of his headspace to calm down. That's what Rubik's Cubes and puzzles do. So there's so many things that we have. And uh, giving these things to kids brings them back to the classroom. When you have them present, then the reading instruction might stick. Yeah, I love that you just said that because I think, you know, sometimes either leaders or teachers see oh, well, this student is standing in the back of the room or the student has a quote toy at their desk. And it's, it's not a toy. This is a regulation tool. And we're helping the student take that time that they need in a set time, right? You said set a timer. This is not an extended period of time. We're not talking about 25 minutes of your one hour literacy block or two hour literacy block. And the purpose is to teach students how to take deep breaths, how to use this tool and regulate so that they can re-enter and learn. And I, I remember when I taught fifth grade, I, I did this just, I loved having students be able to walk around and I had a bin in the back of the room, you know, and a little station and they could take anything that they wanted from there, go back to their desks and they could stand, they could sit, they could just hold it, use it. And it, allowed them to be present. And once I started that in my classroom, it was a game changer. And I think now it's like catching on mainstream with the fidget tool. I don't know if they're called fidget tools, the fidgets, fidget toys is what I'm trying to say. You know, the puppets or the little um, intertwiny rings and, and, or the, there's one real annoying one that makes noise that I is like, looks like a to be thing. Teachers, we don't want that one probably, but (laughs) I'm I'm picturing all of these great things that are out there now that you know teachers could use and you know fill the the classroom with so students could have this regulation support and and get back into instruction. So that leads me to one of my favorite things called the reading regulation. Oh, yeah. And so any teacher can do everything you just described. There's a couple of things that that challenge us or get in our way temporarily. The first one is our own expectations of what we and all of our students are going to get done in 45 minutes. And I don't know about you, but I taught, I'm not telling you how many years I taught, certainly way long enough to write a lesson plan that actually fit in the time that I had for that lesson. <laughs> and I, it's so rarely happened. And yet I kept expecting myself to do it and then expected the kids to. So I, I want to remind us all, because we all teach reading. One of my favorite things to do in a, like an auditorium full of high school teachers, particularly, just because many of them would say, I don't teach reading. Um, how many of you teach reading? And, you know, a couple of the po- folks who work in the remedial reading and the literacy and, and um, language and literacy blocks would maybe raise their hands. And I would say to the, you know, PE and health, so... If kids can't read at grade level, that's not a problem in your section. And so I go on. And by the time I'm done, everybody's raising their hands and patting themselves <laughs> on the back. And we're having a good time. And then I say, okay, so now I want to ask you, and this is the question I ask everybody I work with. When a student doesn't sound the word out properly, right? So instead of C-A-T, cat, they say Kate, right? They're putting a long A there. Um how many 
people in education would say, that's it. How many times have I told you this is cat? You need to leave my room. No one. The answer to that is no one. Sometimes I hold my breath, but I have never had a teacher <laughs> raise their hand and say, I do that. Right. Because we understand that we need to help these children grow their brains so that they can read. No question. We all know that. It's actually common sense, right? So why then, when I am sounding the word out and I get frustrated and um, start talking very quickly, or maybe I, you know, little kids will just, I've seen five-year-olds just jump up and start running circles around the room, apropos of nothing else, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, hoodie up and head down. Uh, my favorite was the eighth grader who just because he knew it was a sticking point for me would stick his headphones in his ears while he was looking at me. I, I, I used to dream about what I would do with those headphones. Um, <laughs> the point was the, these behaviors that, that block the kids learning. Why then do all of a sudden we switch to, if you do that again, then you're going to lose points or you're going to have to go right. see Mrs. So-and-so. Why don't we use the same step-by-step -step accepting approximation approach that we do with reading, that we do with whatever learning we're involved in. So, Lori, you mentioned earlier, you know, they can do this for a couple of minutes. So I had a young lady who I, I was called to the classroom. Um, I was um, working with the school. So the teacher says, all right, I have a student I need help with. So I go down and I watch and, you know, we'll call her Betsy. So... Betsy was seven years old and Betsy would come in and disrupt the classroom mightily um, for about, you know, a half an hour to an hour. And the poor teacher was exasperated and um, Betsy would, you know, involve other people. And it really was very frustrating. And then Betsy would go in the back of the room and fall sound asleep where she would sleep if you left her, you know, through lunch. And so we had a meeting after I did a few observations and it was, you know, people at the table saying, you know, Betsy can't just keep sleeping. And I said, okay, what happens when we wake Betsy up? And so finally the teacher said very quietly at the table, when she's sleeping, I can actually educate the rest of the kids. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean it's okay for Betsy to sleep through second grade. But then we started to dig what's going on with Betsy. Where is her brain? Is she physically well? We invite the caregiver in who shares um, a lot bravely shares about the adverse experiences that Betsy has been exposed to. Um, and the bottom line was that she wasn't sleeping at home. It wasn't a safe place. So we wrote a sleep plan for her and it took six months, but by the end of the six months, um, she was taking a nap in the afternoon and was a much more effective student. She was no longer screaming around the room because she knew at a certain period of time she was going to be able to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. And she finished second grade very close to grade level with her literacy skills. Okay, so if we had just kept saying, but she needs to stay awake instead of what does she need from us? Mm -hmm. She possibly could have morphed into a very dangerous student in a few years. Yeah. It's accepting that approximation. It's the same thing we do with whatever we teach. Right. And yet when their behaviors interfere, then suddenly we're out and it's their responsibility. 
You know, something that you brought up when you're talking about that made me think of um, something in your book you talk about is the shame cycle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I see it in some of those behaviors, right? Like the teacher kind of shaming the student for doing the behaviors that are wrong. But I, I also wanted to ask you when I read about that in the book was, what about with reading, right? What about the, maybe not the shame from the teacher, right? Because you said teachers are much more supportive, but just generally that feeling of shame that students might feel if they are not reading or, you know, where they should be for their grade level. And ha- what happens, what happens with that? So talk, this, talk all about shame. So, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> shame floods the system with that amygdala I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens, it's very deep complicated psychiatric and psychological phenomenon, but the development of self, right? I'm, I'm worthy. I can have friends and uh, somebody likes me, right? All of this that starts like that and turns into, you know, um, I'm worthy of love as we grow older. Um, when that doesn't develop properly, the feeling, overwhelming feeling that we are terrible, we're no good, we can't do it, it's no good, it won't work. Yeah. The flooding of shame. So I want teachers to understand that that children can be full of shame despite your best efforts to genuinely like them and care for them and trust them. And no, I don't. Well, I've never met a teacher who got up in the morning to go to school and make kids feel ashamed. No, me neither. <laughs> so what I want teachers to understand is sometimes the brain is going towards the shame anyway. Right. So. When you say, you know, do you have your work? Because that's your job to ask this kid privately if he has his work and he doesn't. He's flooding himself with shame, even though you haven't done the whole how many times have I told you? Ooh, that was when I had to give up. Oh, I used to do that all the time because I started teaching middle school. So, you know, it was how many times have I told you? I just I I let that go from my vocabulary altogether. It really has helped my marriage a lot. My husband, I don't have to ask him how many times I've told him. Um, But so um, the idea is that that they are they are looking for reasons to not be good enough. And so I just kind of took it on. The, the way Theo was teaching me, like I just like so many good teacher. I refuse. I refuse to let you feel bad about yourself. So again, pointing out to kids, not praise bombing. Praise bombing only makes them not trust you. Oh, you're so pretty. You look so fabulous. Don't do that. Um, most kids only think that means you really don't care about them. But when you say, look, you set the timer and you wrote, you know, your first name. Look at you. You wrote your first name. And I came back when I said I would constantly pointing it out because what happens is we're like, but you're in sixth grade and you should have, you know, a paragraph and a half by now, like the rest of the kids. Right. If teachers could say to themselves, I'm never going to get to the paragraph and a half with him. If I can't get him to like sustain his belief in himself enough to write his name. So we need patience with the process Um, and ourselves. Grace in the space is what I call it. You know, nobody's perfect. And I have apologized to students probably more than I've complimented them. Wow. Okay. I think I expected you to get farther than you did. And that's on me, but let me help you with this and that and the other thing. And I found that with kids with trauma, as I began to learn more about this and began to work with more and more and more of them at different ages, um, after a couple of weeks of, you know, you showing your vulnerability and, um, laughing at yourself and 
um, accepting whatever it is that they give you, um, then the shame doesn't overwhelm them as often. Um, but it's a big one. And, and we think shame is, you know, that whole wagging of the finger and, right. and yes, that, that does shame kids. And I hope we're not doing that on a good day. None of us are treating children that way. Um, but kids feel ashamed just because we've said maybe next time you'll get that and walked away. Right. <laughs> that's such a normal teacher's thing to say, nice try, you know, next time you'll get that. And the kid's like, that's it. I'm no good. I can't. So we have to meet them where they are just like we do with whatever reading level they're on, how, wherever they are. If they're in fifth grade right. and you know, they're just tapping out sentences. Then we don't, we just say, okay. And when you treat kids that way, they start to accept. So if their reading level is three grade levels behind, particularly ooh, as you move into the upper grades and middle school, they become acutely aware. Um, as a person who taught in self-contained programs in middle school for a bunch of years, I just would say it out loud to the kids. I, I refuse to allow you to accept that. My classmates think I'm stupid. Okay, what are you going to do about that? You know, but positive growth theory. Mm -hmm. I'm going to work with you so that you believe you're not stupid, but we, and you talk to us, us. good. I was just saying, you talk to us too about keeping expectations high, right? So, you know, you're saying just because they're reading below grade level doesn't mean you can't also have high expectations for them. Yes. And it doesn't mean that you can't get frustrated or slightly angry. (laughs) (laughs) I I hear my son Theo in my head all the time because he has trained with me and he's done, you know, podcasts with me and stuff. And so now I just hear him being snarky in my head and I hear Theo going, yeah, she can get angry. (laughs) So the whole idea is, you know, to be able to say, kids, I I expect more from you because I know you're capable of more. And right now my job is to help you see what you're able to do. Yes. Because you're the only one who doesn't believe in you, but I'm not giving up on you. That's so powerful. Right? And, and I have said that out loud and in so many other ways. Yeah. And I think what what resonates with me, what resonates with me, Melissa, is it's that first step. For example, when you talk about helping the student have the perseverance to write their name, they can like you cannot expect them to write an essay if they won't pick up the pencil to write their name. And what I'm hearing you say that is really standing out to me is just the respect that you as an educator are giving to the student to build the relationship that's needed to move forward so that that essay does finally happen. I'm hearing the word, like I'm seeing the word yet in my mind every time you're talking. I'm like, dot, 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 yet, right? It will happen. I believe you. I believe in you. I believe that you can do this. We're going to start here. And we're just not at the essay yet, but we will be. Right. I just love that. I think, and you know, you're really teaching yeah. growth mindset. And that, that's exactly it, Lori. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of science around growth mindset and um, it's not grit. You should also throw that word away. Um, just because one size doesn't fit all. And even though like my son, Noah, definitely needs to develop perseverance, even though he's a child without aces. Um, Grit kind of sounds like, you know, suck it up buttercup. Mm -hmm. And we all have ability to, to overcome certain things and not others and with or without trauma. So your entire class 
needs a positive growth mindset. And that's really, I can do this. And there's lots of it. First of all, you can Google growth mindset. Um, Carol Duick has a lot of stuff out there. Um, basically, you know, goal setting. You'd be amazed. I, I've met with fifth grade kids with trauma. And when you ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've still had some of them, you know, who haven't passed science in four years say they want to be an astronaut. You know, that's five-year-old kind of magical thinking. Mm. Um, that's your that's a good sign that they are developmentally delayed in their limbic system somewhere. Not that we need to diagnose kids, but if fifth graders have magical thinking like that, they're not liars. That's where their brain is. So I what I did was um because I, I like to um, help my teachers get to all of this without giving them 86 different separate programs that cost $100 million. Um, <laughs> so I said to my teachers, how about if we ask every student in the school and we split them all up, um, especially when you get to middle school, you know, everybody got 25 kids and they had like seven months to get through their list. And we sat down with every one of those kids and asked them, we called, and they made fun of me by naming it Wishes and Fishes eventually. I had this really clever, long name. And um, so Wishes and Fishes is every single student, every single year needs to be asked, what is it that you do really well? What is it that you'd like to do better? And what do you want to be when you grow up? No one, uh, my sophomore year in high school, um, actually, I think it was junior year, my um, English teacher, we were, that was the year that we were writing big thesis papers. And um, I, interesting, I wrote a paper on, on um, family abuse, like women who are battered by their partners. She's like, what a harbinger. I had no idea. Um, so it was so powerful. The, the research moved me and she was so amazed by the quality of my work. And so she started meeting with me and, you know, she finally said to me, you know, Melissa, what do you want to do next? And um, I, of course, wanted to, I, I was um, a world-class equestrian and so I told her that and she had no idea. And then I realized that not a single teacher that I'd ever had up until junior in high school knew that I even rode horses. We have a lot of kids. We have a lot of work that needs to be get done. But every single child needs to ask themselves, what do I do well? Because... The first time we did this in my school, there was, I, I crunched the numbers. I had everybody put their answers into a, um, a program, like an Excel program, so I could get numbers. We didn't do that every year, but the first year we did. And it was something like 68% of my K-8 students um, couldn't tell you one thing they did well. 68%. Wow. Yeah, right? Like. You know, That's a lot. and like some kids were like, I'm a really good skier and teacher would be like, have you ever skied before? No, but I'm really good at it, you know, online or in this game. <sighs> so um, what started to happen over the we've done it for five years now is that that number changed dramatically the second year because kids were ready for it. 
And now what they do is um, they collect the what I want to be when I grow up and they give it to kids when they, when they leave our school in eighth grade to go to high school. So they have this, you know, nine year look back on what they want to be when they grow up because it's funny, right? It goes all over the place. <laughs> I'm going to be a ballerina. Yeah. I'm going to be a fireman. I'm going to be, you know, all, all the same kid. Um, but it's connection and connection builds safety and safety helps reduce shame. And all of those things need to occur before we can learn to read. Regardless of yes. the fabulous reading program we're using. Yes. I am actually on page 60 of your book, Melissa. And um, the it is, uh, be curious about me. Ask me what about what I like and what I'm interested in. And I'm loving this sentence here or two sentences here. Um, we can understand why being curious about kids with trauma is helpful. We are developing relationships. We are modeling the dance of attachment, showing them how to care about others. And it, that to me is what you're saying. Really model that and be that for the child or the children. And then they can come back and, and learn from you in not just learning how to read, but in learning how to develop relationships and to work through that trauma that they may have experienced. The single most important thing we can do is make sure that every single student that walks through a public school or a private school or any school, honestly, um, feels connected to at least one person in that school. And then we need to teach them to read. Because yeah, that's really important. Everything else, everything else falls from, you know, I, I need one safe person. And some of us work in school districts where we know that the only safety the child has is in our school. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who work in, in very high um, income school districts, I offer to you that trauma knows no socioeconomic boundaries. It might look different in five bedroom homes, but it's just as prevalent. I think that we have um, ideas of where trauma lives and I think it lives everywhere. And I think that's very clear from the state of the world that we're living in now. So thank you for naming that. Melissa, I want to Thank Make you. sure that we have a few moments to close out the podcast. And so we're going to do a couple rapid fire questions. <laughs> All right. The first one okay. is, what do you love to read? Everything. Mostly I read historic fiction, but I read trade books as well. Awesome. What do you love to watch? Oh, Big Bang Theory is my guilty pleasure, um, but I'm making my way through um, a number of different shows. I found um, Dark Winds, so I'll do like the sci-fi thing. Um, I'm a closet Star Trek fan. Why closet? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, because I've never been to a convention, I guess, and, and you know, dressed Got it. up okay. as, as Leonard Nimoy, but I'm one step away from that. That is fun. What do you love to listen to? Bruce Springsteen. I'm a Jersey girl. 
Absolutely. But also, I, you know, I spent a lot of time around horses and truly uh, cowboys and cowgirls. So I have a great love of country music as well. Nice. I'm a Jersey girl too. So I, I totally get that. <laughs> what is a memory that you love as a teacher or uh, an educator or as a student? Um, I have two okay. that I'll share. The first one is um, as a teacher working with a student who was very hurt um, over a long period of time by the people who should have been caring for him. And um, he was a challenge and I was his person. He didn't really pick that, but I was the only one not not as afraid of him as everybody else was. And, um, I just, um, I wouldn't give up on him. And, um, at eighth grade graduation, um, which he invited me to, um, they, it was a very small private school that he had gone to. And so they all got a chance to say a few things. And so he said, um, basically some version of the fact that, um, I gave him his life back. And I think that so many teachers have given so many kids their life back. And that just happened to be an opportunity for this student to say that to me. Um, and so that just was a moment in time that culminated why I'm in this business. Um, and then as an, uh, uh, the additional one was as a building principal. Um, I had, was working with a teacher. And once again, it's a recurring theme with me. She didn't really like me. Um, because I, I, I knew she was so much more capable than she seemed to know she was. And, um, so I was moving things around like you do in the summer and I changed her teaching assignment by two grade levels and she threatened to quit. And she, I, New Jersey is a union state. So she grieved me to the board of education, which of course it was my right to move her wherever I wanted. But I kept saying to her, I, I want you to understand that that I'm doing this for you, not to you, and um, that I think you will find um, that that you have so much to give. And maybe this grade level is a place where you can find it. And she did. And I was right. And that's not the moral of the story. The moral story is now she's teaching teachers and she loves to tell the story of how much she didn't like me. <laughs> and yet, you know, that there's lessons to be learned and we are, you know. Um, friends who communicate frequently. We don't live anywhere near each other, but um, I guess she, she likes me now. But that was such a moment as an educator, as an educational leader, um, to, to battle through um, with an educator I greatly respected um, to help her really find her true calling. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great moral too. Like there's things that happen in life that are out of our control, whether it be personally or professionally. And usually those things help us to grow stronger. It's just really hard to see that in that moment. So I'm happy to hear it had a happy ending. <laughs> okay. I have yes. one final question for you. Why do you do what you love for education, for literacy, for, I would say, honestly, all of the children who are benefiting from teachers learning about trauma? Because of that moment, 
when um, I was home alone with Theo and he had just destroyed the living room again and I had no idea where to turn. And I had already tried turning to my peer group of fellow mothers who um, didn't really know how to manage me. You know, it's kind of like, well, what's wrong with you that Theo keeps behaving like this? And um, it was a very, very dark time for me. And then I found um, the Attachment and Trauma Network. And I will call her out by name because she deserves it. Julie Beam, who was the executive director of the Attachment and Trauma Network. And I found them on Facebook and was really just trying to get some, some help for my son and for me. And she said to me, uh, all you have to do is love him and let us love you. And I thought, for the rest of my life, I think I was driven by overcoming obstacles and then turning around and lifting, you know, putting my hand down to help other people overcome their obstacles the way um, this organization and Julie Beam did for me. Because I, I don't know where I, Theo and I, and my marriage, right? There's a lot there. I don't know where I would be if somebody hadn't just said, we got you. And no matter what happens, no matter what Theo does, it's not because you're a bad person or a bad mother. Yeah. I think not blaming the person who is, nobody wants their child to be doing that, right? Or children in our classrooms to be dysregulated so much that they are, yeah, they're acting the way that, that doesn't feel good. And I'm sure it doesn't feel good for them. It doesn't feel good for us, but it's not helpful to blame. It's not helpful to blame the teacher. It's not helpful to blame the student. I love what you shared earlier about the story of helping that student set aside a time to take a nap because that made all the difference in her day. And I think that that just brings me back to the word that really resonated this entire podcast, and that's respect. So thank you so much for being here and for helping us to see how being respectful looks, you know, in many different ways for many different people. And it really depends on meeting their needs. So thank you for helping us see that today. And we are so grateful that you took so much time to spend with us and to talk with us about this. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.